Open with me to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. Two weeks ago, we considered Matthew 4, where Jesus begins his public ministry by proclaiming that the kingdom of heaven is near. There we saw that the kingdom is not primarily a place, a people, or a situation. And that might be surprising. It's more often how we think of the kingdom. But it's actually the kingship, the power, the reign of God itself in heaven and earth. And so today we come to a chapter in Matthew that contains a whole cluster of parables concerning the kingdom of God. The disciples and the religious leaders have heard the message of Jesus. They've seen Jesus do some amazing things. But there's this lingering doubt. Is this really the kingdom of God? I imagine them saying, is this it? Is this it? Have you been there? Looking at your life, looking at this world and wondering, where is all this power of God I keep hearing about? Is this it? But it is to pensive and doubting hearts today that Jesus speaks. And as he speaks, the mystery of the kingdom is revealed. The paradox of the kingdom, the seemingly contradictory reality of God's unfolding plan to redeem the world, it challenges our black and white thinking. Not only can two things be true at the same time, Jesus opens our eyes to see a kaleidoscope of transformations both within ourselves and in our world. Maybe that seems too good to be true. Maybe seeds of doubt have been planted in your soul by way of cynicism or pain. I guarantee you that you are not the only person in this room right now who wonders, can everything sad really come untrue? Can it really? My hope is that our doubtful souls would be redirected by Jesus' parables in order to recognize the mystery of his kingdom. Just two things today that we would be redirected by his parables to recognize the mystery of the kingdom. So let's read, then we'll pray, and then we'll dive into two of these kingdom parables. Matthew 13, I'm going to start reading in verse 31. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds. But when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in the words of Joseph Hart as sinners, weak, wounded, sick, and sore. Remind these dear people and myself today that Jesus stands ready to save us, full of pity that is joined with his power. Lord, remind our hearts today that he is willing and he is able. And may that dispel the gloomy clouds of doubt and help us see the light of your kingdom. 
May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight and yours alone, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. First, may we be redirected by his parables. I've unknowingly locked myself into a pretty time-intensive nighttime routine around 7.30 every night. My kids have grown accustomed to hearing me tell stories, and not just reading a book or gathering all together to hear a few stories, but each kid at each one of their bedtimes. The younger two request three stories. They want a silly story, they want a family story, and then they want a Jesus story. It's, time, it's a time that I've really come to cherish, but it also stretches my patience and my creativity. Klein Snodgrass is a silly name, but a serious theologian. He says this, Children do not say, tell me some facts. They want a story. story stories are inherently interesting. Discourse we tolerate to stories we attend. Stories inform, yes, but they involve, they motivate, they authenticate, and they mirror reality. From this other world of a story, we are invited to understand, evaluate, and hopefully redirect our lives. What I want us to see today is that parables take this power of story one step further. They are more than word pictures, more than illustrations. What a parable is is as an extended analogy that's intended to explain, convince, and persuade others. You're all tracking with me? It's an extended analogy. In the words of Marianne Moore, a poet, parables are imaginary gardens with real toads. I love that image. Imaginary gardens with real toads. Parables are fiction that communicate deep truth. And y'all, truth always motivates change. Truth always motivates change. Parables, like all stories to one degree or another, they do have an agenda. The stories I tell my children are, yes, to entertain, but they're to bond with them. They're to teach them the beauty and power of God. It's been said, though, that stories are not inherently good. And we need to pause and see this. Stories are not inherently good. There are untrue stories. Stories can be used to tell and convey any religion, any philosophy, any ideology, and even falsehood. I can tell false stories to my head when I get into my head. You can tell false stories to yourselves, to one another, and we can believe these stories. I hope you can see now the importance of the stories of Jesus for us. We need these. They tell us about the kingdom. They tell us about who God is, who we really are, and how we are designed by God to live in this world. And they direct us to action. The stories of Jesus are not modeling clay for us to mold with our own hands, free to draw meaning from as we wish. The meaning is baked in deep, and it's only appreciable when we meditate, chew, and digest the goodness of the whole. It reminds me about how my mom used to make biscotti. Y'all know what biscotti is? It's these rock-hard cookies that have been baked like two or three times that are meant for like dipping in coffee. But of course, an impatient kid, I didn't want to deal with that. I wanted to eat the chocolate all the way around the outside and then just leave the rest of the cookie. That's not how it was meant to be enjoyed. I was bypassing the entire 
point. Missing the key ingredients that were baked in deep. And y'all, there's a key theme in all of Jesus' parables, and that is the theme of reversal. Reversal. There's a paradoxical change that takes place. Tax collectors are righteous and Pharisees are wicked. Samaritans are neighbors and poor ditch diggers become rich. And here in this text, small seeds and a tiny bit of fermented dough expand far beyond expectations and provide blessing. Reversal, change. So let's start with verses 34 and 35, and then we'll bounce back to the parables. Look with me again at verse 34. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. So Jesus cites here what we read earlier in the service, Psalm 78. And there in Psalm 78, it's slightly different in Matthew's reference. But in the Hebrew, um, we translate it as dark sayings. I will utter dark sayings. It's commonly translated as riddle. It's a hidden saying. It's something that has deep meaning that is not easy to get at. And doesn't this match up with the way that Jesus speaks? There's something hidden about the kingdom, something mysterious, precisely because it does not belong to everyone. The kingdom does not belong to everyone. Listen to what we hear earlier in chapter 13. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. This seeing, not seeing, hearing, not hearing language harkens straight back to, telling, to God telling Israel that if they kept worshiping these false gods of wood and stone, they're going to become just like the gods of wood and stone. They would have all the form of a person, but like a piece of wood, they cannot hear, they cannot see. Here, it's coming true in Israel's life. They've become that which they worshiped. They've become like that which they've worshipped, blind and deaf and lifeless. Parables, then, are a continuation of exile for unrepentant Israel. Like Moses, they, they can see the promised land, but they can't know it and they can't enter it. So it is with the kingdom for those who do not repent and believe. So it is with the kingdom for those who do not repent and believe. But by the grace of God, those who were blind to the kingdom can be given eyes to see. The mystery, what was hidden, is revealed in time through Christ. So, how do the two parables redirect us and enable us to recognize some of the mystery of the kingdom? Look with me again at verse 31. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. 
You may notice that Matthew records it here as the kingdom of heaven, but in Luke's account of the same parable, he says it's the kingdom of God. I want to encourage you, you don't have to read too much into that. The phrases kingdom, kingdom of God, and kingdom of heaven are all synonymous in the New Testament. They refer to the same reality, the power of God manifested in heaven and on earth. We also see another common image here in this parable, that of a mustard seed. You've heard that faith is like a mustard seed. Here, the kingdom is like a mustard seed. Why is that? Well, in the Jewish Greco-Roman world, mustard seeds were understood proverbially for their small size, even though everyone really knew that orchids and cypress seeds in the same region were much smaller. It's similar to me saying something like, it's the best thing since sliced bread. I don't, and I don't know anybody who really thinks that sliced bread is the best thing. But somehow it's become a saying, and we all know what it means. That's what we're talking about here with the mustard seed. There is a certain type of mustard seed, the black mustard, that germinates in five days, and it can grow to up to 10 feet tall. It has really large um, leaves. And that's likely the type of mustard plant that he's referring to. In Mark's account, he actually uses the word for large plant because it's really not technically a tree, but compared to the other things in this man's garden, it, was, it would have looked like one. The birds would have been attracted to it because of the shade from those large branches, those large leaves, and the seeds themselves. And even though Matthew says the, the birds are making nests, the word really there means just to dwell or to settle or to find rest because a bird couldn't really make a nest truly in this type of mustard plant. Now, focus with me here for a second. There's no need to read this as an allegory, where we kind of assign meaning to each one of the things in the parable. If Jesus tells us an allegory in Scripture, he'll tell us. He did that with the parable of the, um, the gardener and the soil, right? He threw the seed, and each type of soil represented a different type of person. When Jesus is telling us an allegory, he'll typically tell us that it's going to be an allegory, not so much here. We might also be tempted to read this as having to do with the growth of the kingdom, right? Okay, well, we have a growing plant and we have a growing loaf of bread. Surely it's about growth. But remember, the kingdom, if the kingdom is the power of God, how can that really grow? How can the power of God actually grow? It can be revealed, but it cannot grow. So rather than being an allegory or about the growth of the kingdom, the question for the disciples is whether they would recognize the process of God becoming king. Would they recognize the process, this humble process, this mysterious process, this process that takes, takes place while they are asleep, that that's how the king is coming? that that's how the kingdom will transform the world? This parable addresses the implicit question of Jesus' skeptical listeners about the unimpressive and unexpected nature of the kingdom Jesus claimed was so near. One scholar put to words the core doubt of the disciples. Could what was happening with Jesus and the disciples really be the establishment of God's kingdom? This ramshackle bunch, this carpenter, he's not doing anything that we expected him to do. It was an offense. It was shocking. It is unexpected. 
So a big plant from a small seed points to the fact that the presence of God's kingdom in Jesus, even if others didn't recognize it, was sure and certain. Listeners could have full confidence in the revelation of the kingdom to come. Before we go any further, let's turn to the parable of the leaven. These are twin parables, but they're more fraternal than identical. They each have a different layer of meaning. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Now, we often talk about this like yeast because that's what we're familiar with, okay? But this would have actually been more like a small portion of fermenting dough that had been held back from the previous batch, Okay, so then three measures of flour here was roughly a bushel. That's a lot of dough. That's about all one person could really need and handle. And so if this woman is putting this small amount of fermented dough into this batch, this could probably feed around 100 people. It's a pretty large, large batch of bread. You're feeding the community at this point. Now, take a step back and survey the two parables. Extraordinary blessing, big branches, big leaves, shade for these birds, small beginnings, just a little bit of dough feeding a hundred people. Small beginnings, humble starting points, easily overlooked, not impressive until completion. This is the kingdom of God. George Ladd reminds us that the mystery of the kingdom is its arrival in an utterly unexpected way. It's not now destroying human rule. It's not now abolishing sin from the earth. It has come quietly, unobtrusively, and secretly. It can work among men and never be recognized by the crowds. In short, it's come like a mustard seed. It's come like leaven. It has come like Sally Lloyd-Jones describes in the Jesus Storybook Bible. Mountains would have bowed down, seas would have roared, trees would have clapped their hands, but the earth held its breath. As silently as snow falling, when no one was looking, in the darkness, Christ came into the world. Do you hear it? That's the mystery of the kingdom. Remember what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 1. God shows what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. John Calvin paints it beautifully. The Lord opens His reign in a feeble and despicable way for the express purpose that His power may be more fully illustrated by its unexpected progress. So the imagery of this botanical and biological growth and the seed and the leaven culminates in a patient process that brings remarkable results. The nesting of the birds and the eating of the bread are simple images that God's kingdom is bringing fullness and blessing. God's kingdom is bringing fullness and blessing. So, We've said that parables have an intent, right? They have an agenda. Jesus' intent here is to persuade his listeners to action, whether that be changed experience, changed thoughts, changed feelings, changed actions, changed desires. I don't know what the Holy Spirit will work in you today, but here are a few possible paths. Here are just a few possible paths. 
I want to encourage you today to hope your hopes, doubt your doubts, and let Jesus speak for Jesus. Hope your hopes, doubt your doubts, and let Jesus speak for Jesus. First, hope your hopes. The mustard seed and the leaven urge and warn us that no one should be put off by what appears unimpressive. Jews, whether the followers of Jesus or otherwise, did not need to be told the kingdom of God was coming. They knew that. What they didn't know is that a ramshackle assortment of disciples and a carpenter from Nazareth would be the starting point. The challenge to them and you and I is whether we will be offended by this mystery of the kingdom and turn away. The question for us today is this. Will we pledge allegiance to this kingdom or we will, will we stand in opposition to it? It's been said that the mustard seed and the leaven, like the cross itself, challenges human perception and judgment about smallness and significance. They are stumbling blocks for some and the hope of all hopes for others. Richard Hayes puts it this way, the mystery of God's kingdom is that it's his purpose made flesh in a dead and condemned man. The purpose of God in a dead and condemned man? But if we are given eyes to recognize that God chooses the small things, the weak things to accomplish his purposes, the mustard seed and the leaven become a source of deep assurance and comfort. Y'all, God uses weak, small things and people over and over and over again. Think about it. The tiny little earth in the vast expanse of his universe of wonders. His image bearers from the dust. The nothingness of Abraham. Jacob over Esau. Other younger brothers, Joseph and David insignificant little Israel, Mary and Joseph, that despicable town of Nazareth. Could anything good come out of Nazareth? The death of a criminal on a cross, a few women with perfumes and spices for a morgue, a few men going into the world with a message, a book, a book. How simple. How humble. This is what we've got. And it contains multitudes. A ramshackle bunch of sinners and saints gathered at 640 East Northside Drive in a town like Jackson, Mississippi. Are y'all sensing a pattern here? Do y'all see how God works? Do you see what he's up to? This brings shame to the big things, the strong things, because all the aptitude, all the pride is for nothing in the end. God starts small, and when he starts small, he gets all the glory for the results, and we get all the good. He gets all the glory, we get all the good. One scholar reminds us that the kingdom of heaven may be unnoticed or disdained by most people for the time being, but the time will come when it will be impossible to ignore impossible. We hear Jesus pray in Matthew 11, thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, 
that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. The kingdom is not only inconspicuous, it's also deliberately kept hidden for the time being. And all of Jesus' teaching, but especially his parables, are elusive, challenging, they're unsettling, leaving his audience in a dilemma as to what response they should make. So how do you respond? How do you respond? I pray that it's with hope. But even when that hope seems hard to reach, I want to encourage you to doubt your doubts. Doubt your doubts. Now, don't hear me saying doubt your beliefs. Now, we will at times. Every believer I've spoken with has struggled at times with doubt. But I'm saying doubt the doubt themselves. Doubt the doubts themselves. C.S. Lewis once said, we're not necessarily doubting that God will do the best for us. We are wondering how painful the best will turn out to be. Let me read that one more time. We are not necessarily doubting that God will do the best for us. We are wondering how painful the best will turn out to be. When we look at the kingdom and we wonder when it's coming and we wonder, well, is this the blessing? Is this the power? That's the question that will rise up within our hearts. And doubt can spring from all kinds of soil within our hearts. Maybe being hurt, maybe experiencing pain, whether in life or even within the church, causes someone to doubt their faith. All of a sudden, the sinners who profess the faith become inexorably tied to the faith itself, and it seems difficult, if not impossible, to untangle the two. In this situation, it's difficult to grieve and hurt the loss there. Maybe doubt springs from having believed false teaching. If it's not the faith of the Bible, it's no surprise that people would turn away from it, I would hope they would. But when we realize we've been taught a lie, and, but don't realize that it wasn't even Christianity in the first place, that's what can be unsettling. Too often, however, we believe the lie that by rejecting what we've believed in the past, we are now somehow neutral. Now, all of a sudden, I have clear eyes to see everything as it is. But do you see the foolishness in this? In reality, we often exchange what we see as one broken-down house for simply another. Friends, no one sees perfectly clearly, not one. But once again, like C.S. Lewis says, we put God in the dock. We put Him in the witness stand as if we were the righteous judge, when in reality, it's the other way around, as Christ stands in as our advocate. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus repeatedly says, you have heard it said... But I say unto you, y'all recognize that refrain? He's not talking about the Old Testament there. He's talking about the human tradition of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You have heard it said, but I say unto you. Jesus has to correct false teaching in order to bring saving, freeing faith. Maybe doubt springs from a desire to sin. If there is a God, I have to answer to him. If the repentance I am called to requires me to turn away from what I want to do or even what I feel like I have no choice to do, then often people may feel like they have to rewrite the Christian faith or abandon it entirely. We doubt these doubts. We hold up our doubts with the same amount of scrutiny we hold up our beliefs. 
When I doubt that the things in my life can change, I need eyes to see. When I doubt that I am truly loved, I need eyes to see. When I grow angry at the state of our city, our world, and fail to recognize that underneath that anger is just fear that I might not be safe, I need eye to see, eyes to see. And what Jesus gives us eyes to see is that the blessing that will one day be enjoyed is still in process. Y'all, the blessing is in process. I cannot initiate or control or even assist in the completion of the kingdom of God. Like that leavening growing, I'm asleep while it's happening. I have nothing to do with that tree, with that mustard plant growing. However, I can rest in the shade of its branches. I can be fed by the generous portion of bread given to me by my Savior. So friends, I encourage you, hope your hopes. Doubt your doubts, but don't stop there. Let Jesus speak for Jesus. Let Jesus speak for Jesus. When you doubt what's true, when you doubt that God is good, when you doubt perhaps not God himself, but the people who take his name in vain, take a moment to reflect. Take a moment to reflect. Reflect on the cross. 1 Corinthians 1, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Friends, this is the foolishness of a mustard seed, the foolishness of leaven rising, the foolishness of God living, dying, rising, rescuing, redeeming. What I'm inviting you to today is to make a fool of yourself. Make a fool of yourself. For those who struggle to see what God is up to in your own soul or this church or this town, I pray that this story of Jesus would redirect you and that he would bring recognition of the mystery, that he would bring confidence and hope that he who began a good work in you will complete it on the day of Christ Jesus. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards, not many of you powerful, not many of noble birth. But God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became the wisdom of to us, the wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. There's, there's really nothing more to say after we hear the words of our Savior. In Luke 12, 32, fear not, little flock, little, little flock. For it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. To give you the kingdom. Amen? Let's pray.
Dear refuge of our weary souls, Lord, when sorrows rise, when waves of trouble roll, Lord, on you our fainting hope relies. To you we tell each rising grief, for you alone can heal. Your word can bring a sweet relief for every pain we feel. But Father, when gloomy doubts prevail and we fear to call you our own, when the springs of comfort seem to fail and all our hopes fail, gracious God, where can we flee? You are our only trust. May our souls cling to thee, though this world knock us flat in the dust. Lord, write the truth and the mystery of your kingdom on our hearts. Grant us patience and courage and hope and belief. Thank you for these dear people, and I pray, Lord, your, your word would be with them, in them, and transform all of us, Lord. It's in your precious name I pray. Amen.